You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Avram Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom. This is Schmoozing with Rav Meir Schiller, Meir Ene Chachamim. Today, we thought that maybe we would discuss, if not a curriculum, but maybe a dream idea of what sort of reading material, literature, essays, and things could make sense. I, I guess, as, as you mentioned to me before, what, what sort of school are we even going to begin talking about? So let, let's try to level the playing field or create a playing field. Let's, let's imagine that the school we're talking about is open to all strands of, let's say, orthodoxy. Do you want to uh, put a limit that it's not going to include what we call the left-wing modern orthodoxy? Do you want to try? Let's try to let's try to figure out what who who our school is going to be appealing to. Or, or do we want to make it three points of interest: the modern orthodox, the yeshivish, and the Hasidish, and spend a few minutes with each one, sensing that they're all uh-huh. very different. So you you don't you don't believe we can dream of a sort of a, a sort of a school that can somehow absorb all three strands. You believe that's that's almost such an impossible dream. Well, well no, not quite. I, I have been seeking in board meetings held in my head over the past 50 years to create such a school at which I am the only attendee at these meetings. <laughs> but um, I think it might be possible. But first, we'd have to sort of lay the groundwork in a much better framework than we have uh, have done so far. There are two essential nakudas here. One, that it has to be joyous, God-centered. That's A. And B, not denying God as the creator of the world and even of human beauty. So those would be the two fundamental assaitas. I am not so confident that we can even talk about what works of literature or what approach to history or science we should have if we do not have that that joyous God-centeredness at the core of what we're doing. So you might need a significant grounding in the Yisraelis of, of Yiddishkeit. And also, again, I have to keep emphasizing this, this joyous part of it, that uh, the sense of Geshmak and learning and davening and Shabbos and Yontif and Malva Malkas and Yortzeit and Kedoyma Kedoyma, that that would then enable us, once we have that clarified, and maybe we should assume for the purposes of this broadcast that we have clarified that, that that school is up and running, and now we want to know how we should approach English literature, science, history, etc. I talked about the, the fantasy. What you basically just said, Ramayor, was that we want to take a school that has the bulwark of the Hasidic life and somehow, somehow presume that in this, this world, this, this alternate universe, that these chevra are also proficient in the language and are eager to read and absorb sources that we know, at least many of them that we're going to talk about, were generated from the non-Jewish world. And that is something that doesn't exist now, as you know. You know, you are perhaps the only student of that school that has ever really 
matriculated, right? You were basically the only, <laughs> right? But we don't know of any such place that has that infrastructure of varmkeit, malamalkis, yorzites. You say the Hasidim or the Hasidish Mahalak should form the foundation stone. I'm not so sure if a robust, zestful incarnation of yeshivishism might not also be suitable. In other words, a, a bit more of a, a freilicha musa mahalich, according to the Bali Musa, might also be possible here. So I wouldn't rule out the possibility of this fantasy taking root within the environs of yeshivishism. Well, as someone who was a veteran of those trenches, I saw it a little bit when I was visited a Scranton yeshiva one Shabbos many, many years ago in the 70s. And you're right, it could be that that there are on Litvisha yeshivas now, especially that have popped up everywhere, that have incorporated that type of element. You're right, there are yeshivas that are using some of the, the Hasidic recipe to keep the kids involved. Okay. So it's not such a fantasy. We're talking perhaps of, of a, of a, of, of, of a, of a school built on true Avas Habayre and Avas Yisrael. And, and let's include, if we may here, let's not, let, let's be um, ecumenical and include here as well, sort of the right wing of our orthodoxy and say that um, if, if they could create a yeshiva for their own Talmidim, which would be open as many of them are, to Inyane Hasidus and Musr, that they would certainly be capable of what we're talking about. When it comes to the language of instruction and what we want people to read and be able to converse and to be stolid and cogent in their writing, it might not necessarily be in the English language. But I think for today's discussion, it might be worthwhile to assume, because the examples we're going to talk about, these examples, of course, do come from English. Although let's not let's not neglect. I mean, we can neglect it, to, you know, today. But let's not neglect the importance of being able to think, express oneself, write, public speaking. Because take the Hasidic environs. This would be a great way for Talmudim to get a sense of self, a sense of their own identity. One of the many things which they're lacking. And in, 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 in that society is currently constituted. So with, with that sort of uh, caveat being said, let's open the, uh, the curtain finally. Let's start with fifth grade, fifth through eighth, and then we'll talk about high school. And I, I think that probably is sufficient for a conversation today. The divine intent or the centrality of the Rebbe and all these things have to be emphasized. So it might, in fact, be easier when it comes to science and history, to have a, a divine centrality, and a little harder when it comes to reading material. In other words, I'd want somehow to explain to a, a fourth grader or a, even a second or third grader, I'd want to explain to them why we read stories. Because I always find the Meshaga, and usually amongst those who are not quite capable of doing much of anything, but I always find the Meshaga, why are we doing this? What does it mean? Who needs this? There's the, the constant moaning and groaning of that sort. So I think we need a little sense of understanding, talking about fiction, I guess, fiction, poetry, etc. what that should mean in, in terms of the first parak of Masil Susharim, and how is that translated into the context of a fourth grader? 
So this is no easy task. And I think, again, that this uh, school should ideally put some time on that. Why are we reading stories? You're correct. Science is almost obvious that you're talking about the Nefloyos Habayre, because anything that you ta- any phenomenon that you have, if it's been able to be dealt with cogently, can clearly be directed towards the wisdom of the creator. But I think that the challenge there is not only to find someone who's passionate and, and who's able to, to make it God-centered, but I think that challenge is abetted and helped by the fact that it's so apparent. There are so many videos and moves into the laboratory itself where those truths of the laws of chemistry or physics can actually be replicated. I think there's a theological elephant in the room, and that is the following. In the presentation of reality that the yeshiva shechassiyash world has, nothing matters or should matter except the third teretz and toysvus and tumahalchem in it. We have to explain before we begin why it's important to know more than that, why God took the time out to okay. create an infinitely complex world, Lakewood and, and Square have no answer to that question. None whatsoever. So, so I'm going to push back in the same way about what you said before. You feel that you need a hakdama, I believe, and this comes maybe through the frustration of teaching, that students turn off until you throw them in the pool. If you take too much time to explain why we're doing this and rationalizing it, they don't know what it is yet. However, if you take them and say, wow, I want to take you into the lab, Rabbi Isai. Come in over here and watch what I'm going to do with this, with this bottle. This bottle seems to be nothing. I'm going to add this element, and now I put it under the flame. Look what happens. Look at the explosion. Look at the gas. Look at this. Look, look what's going on. When, when, when they can see it, when they can touch it, when they can be part of it, that brings them into it. I think if you spend too much time, Rameyer, on explaining why, and especially from your Munkacher or, or, or Bishraga kids, whoever they are, that dissipates that question right away. They're already in the land of Oz. They're already there with you. It's in color, and they're dancing, and they're part of it. But they need, they need the Manal or the Magid Shia to spend a half hour with them before it begins. Otherwise, it's delegitimatized by the cultural air which they breathe. Mm. In, in Breuer's, the approach to the theory of evolution in Breuer's was that uh, Rav Schwab came in, I think, don't recall whether before or after it was presented, because in Breuer's first for Shalom in those days, you weren't skipping any part of the 10th grade biology curriculum. So Rav Schwab came in and spoke about God's creation, and it was it was supposed to be a, a rejection of evolution, whether it was successful or not. But that's what he was doing. So I think you need a little bit of that. I mean, let the manal come in every two weeks and learn something from Chambasulavavos about this. I'm not saying every second. I'm not saying prolonged times. You're right. You got to get on the field and play. You're right. But on the other hand, there has to be some sense, or their natural antithetical. You say this, antithetical to life and to creation are going to kick in. 
They're going to kick in. They've been told that nothing except that second, third symptosis matters. That's they've been told for years and years and years and years. So we have to somehow loosen the stranglehold of that puritanical streak in their world. Even if it's not based on ideology or based on what's been drummed into their head, we've already discussed that the way secular studies or what we're going to be talking about, or is shunted into the afternoons of their lives when they're already spent and tired is obviously a way to a recipe for disaster. And not well-trained in elementary respect and work ethic. Let's blame ourselves a little bit here as well. But but I just want to say this is a utopia, okay? So yes, all right. So I'll, I'll grant you that. We do have the schmooze from the Manal. We have the kids. And remember, Rev. Mayor, if they come from the homes that we're going to call from, these homes, probably their parents are, are not yeah. necessarily these ideologues. These parents are bright in a way. And they see parents who are also open to that. So let's just assume, let's, let's imagine parents as well who want to be partners with the Schiller School. And that well-behaved, well-behaved Talmudim, again, if, if, if kids in Russia and China under, under the previous governments were capable of sitting in total respect and getting, you know, super grades in math and sciences, there's no reason why, why our kids are not capable of that, okay? Human beings are capable of a lot of respect and discipline hard work. Especially those living in totalitarian regimes, but um, well, first, well, but first of all, again, 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 I'm not so sure what your what this ideal school is going to look that will look that different. But as you said, love and discipline—it's very hard to marry those two together uh, successfully. I might want to include in the school if we're if we're establishing it right now. I might want to include a, a fairly competitive sports curriculum and phys ed as part of the, let's put that in there as well. Right, but then again, I would just counter that you probably need more than just intramural. In order to have a real biting sports curriculum, you need competition, right? That's really what it's fed on, right? Yeah, but intramurals, if you give them uniforms, you give them reps, you give them coach, you give them stats, not so sure you can't do it with intramurals. There's something about the Bears Packers. There's something about Army Navy. There's something about the hated rival that really brings. I, I, I always say if the Aroinim and Zaloinim would have like a climactic football or basketball game every year, can you imagine? <laughs> you put 100,000 people in, in, in um, JFK Stadium. Like I said, let's let's pull up the, the, um, the curtain and let's yes. talk starting from fifth grade. So we. You, as as you as you say correctly, there, we're going to we're going to uh, assume that there is a, a a vibrant science program that people have recognizing the godless of the Boyerelam in science. They are excited by the rules of mathematics that govern all aspects of the universe that the Rebbeinish Home created. But now we want them to sort of like have some thinking in literature. When Dick and Jane replaced the McGuffey readers. America was done, was done. I mean, I, I, I could cite that as a far more important development than many, many political and other social developments, that you took the McGuffey readers, which were full of traditional poems and stories and literature, and yes, they had, you know, some, some degree of Christian influences. You took that and you replaced it with see, spot, jump, dog, run, mother, and you replaced it with nothing. 
So I think whether we have to create sort of McGuffey readers for uh, for the young. Now, again, here, here's the question. I always say literature are the game films of life, as opposed to Sifre Musa or Achasiz or Ashkafa, which are the playbooks of life. Literature is the game film of life. It's where you go out in the playing field, and this is the way life is going to be implemented. So to take stories uh, which once excited the emotions of young people in America, McGuffey readers-esque stories, or Walter Scott, these sorts of things, the you need for that, again, I'm going to have to go back to the theological question, you're exciting the heart, you're emboldening them, you're talking about courage and integrity and passion and social concerns. These are strange things to the average boy in any yeshiva context. So I, I think that, again, I'd say McGuffey readers for the Jews is sort of where I would begin. We have to start even before fifth grade with the introduction to the language, not just skill-based of where's the noun and where's the verb, but rather something that it stirs the imagination and brings them into a different place, not just the skill of being able to put the sentence together. So we're talking here about even at at, at a first grade level, I, I want to throw in, of course, Theodore Giesel's uh, contribution, which was a reaction to the Dick and Jane readers, as you know. He basically felt that he could take certain keywords uh, that kids, you know, children needed to know to be able to construct simple sentences and understand things. And he, of course, turned it into this a fantasy called the cat in the hat. And he basically understood that kids need to be shown a excited. Excitable. And again, this is part of, you know, why his fantastic looking creatures, you know, got the kids' interest. I I don't think there's anything wrong with giving kids that uh at an early age. In the Hasidish world is much more problematic, obviously. Yeah, yeah. But again, you know, it's 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 taking you into a um it's taking you to move beyond what everybody else is trying to box you into. And it's giving you really the sense of where what reading can do. You know, one of the great Dr. Seuss books, which of course is on Beyond Zebra, where he creates letters. In other words, here you are as a kid working so hard, you know, from the age of two and three to know all your letters. And now Dr. Seuss writes a book where, you know, you know, the alphabet doesn't stop at Z. I've got all these other letters, and, and, and it makes you really imagine the possibility of a world beyond the English-centered world that you live in, that, it's, that there's other languages and there's other ways to think about things. Well, once again, we're going to confront the, the reality, maybe the grim reality, of the Haredi world in which I'm not so sure the imaginative sense the playful imaginative sense, I'm not so sure whether the sense of adventure or whatever we're talking about here, is what they want to have as their end product. So again, there, there is a, again, we're assuming, yes, we have the parent body to want this, but I'm not so sure what they want. I'm not so sure that's what they want. I think they don't want an imaginative sense. I think they don't want a poetic sense. I think they don't want human emotions to be engaged. I think they don't want thoughtful and passionate ideas to be engaged. Can we just clear it away 
and just float <laughs> in the world of imagination. Throw me some of your options for fifth grade. I would hope that their English language skills are sufficient in fifth grade for Walter Scott and Dickens. Mm -hmm. That's what I would hope. Mm -hmm. That we've done a good enough job in the primary grades that they can go to Dickens and understand the world of Dickens, which is an extraordinary world. And um, what might help you a bit here, you do have classics illustrated, you do have, you do have film versions of everything. You might soften the blow a little bit of the 400-page book. You might soften it a little bit by uh, resorting to those means. And there's also the other option, which is, of course, sections. In other words, I told you that the first Dickens book that I cut my teeth on was A, was a Tale of Two Cities. And... You know, everyone knows, of course, the 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 first opening words. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. But right. if you read on and you 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 read that paragraph, you read that that chapter, and you read about the can anyone know anyone else? The interiorness of 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 what human beings are. Again, he's setting the stage for a story, but ultimately he's demanding the reader understand that. It's an imaginative endeavor that really come from the deepest part of a person that perhaps he can never really give over uh, to anyone, even if he writes it beautifully. So what I'm trying to say is right. there are, in, instead of the condensed version, we can take chapters of Dickens' writing and, and give enough background to what this chapter was about to then present it and, and challenge our students to what this speaks, how this speaks to them, and, and what it means. We, we mentioned before, we were talking about Melville before, and we sort of humorously uh, discussed the fact, you know, if you can eliminate all the chapters which deal with how you convert whale blubber to, uh, to oil, you know, and cut down all those digressions of so many, you have a nice novel there. So, uh, yeah, it's also a good example. And I would add here, when it comes to Sir Walter Scott, Especially, I know you mentioned in a in a in a in a letter to me uh, how much you uh, enjoyed Ivanhoe. Of course, Ivanhoe has a very philo-Semitic aspect to it because Rebecca yes. is the prize of everyone there, you know, and it's and it's her Tzitkus that really is able to save the day, you know. So Sir Walter Scott was well known for being, you know, for pushing back against what was happening in England at the time, the, which was, again, a, a resurgence of, of, of medieval anti-Semitism. And uh, I, I think kids in the fifth and sixth grade, when they're, when they're exposed to this, like, what is this period piece? And to mm -hmm. realize when Walter Scott lived and, and what the purpose of that book was or what he was trying to do. I think part of what he was trying to do was to actually give a more sympathetic portrayal of, of the Jewish world. You know, it is, I think, the type of thing which I think can ring a lot of bells to see uh, to see the Jews persecuted, to see the Jews as the in a difficult, terrible state, but yet bringing out the positivity of Jewish values and ideas. So I think Sir Walter Scott is a good choice in that way. I, I agree. I think one of the things that you get out of reading literature is you get a window into other cultures and other times. I remember as a, a very small boy, I read, and I don't recall the details of it, some Chinese literature, which was geared to children based upon Chinese short stories. 
And I remember, oh, it's it's not just about wonton soup and egg rolls, that, you know, <laughs> China is something of significance. And um, this would be, again, you forbid me to mention it, but this would be radically altering when it comes to the worldview presented to our Tomidum today, but that there is a China, there is a Japan, there is an India. Whoa, my goodness gracious, billions, billions of human beings who never really heard of Beishraga. Just to make a sharper point out of what you're saying is that unlike the literature that comes out of Christian Europe, where we do find aspects of, of, of the influence of Jewish morality, literature that comes from the Far East has no semblance. So we could always chest thump about uh, even, you know, whether it's Thomas Hardy or Dickens or Wilkie Collins and say, well, mm-hmm. these are the Jewish ideals that were, you know, boulderized by Christian theologians. We can't say that for that whole with Confucius, with Confucius. That's right. We can't say that at all. It's almost like, how did they survive without Torah? There again, you've got a problem. You've got a problem. Why did God create these 7 billion people? And the standard answer is because some Eskimo is going to fish for some herring in Alaska somewhere. <laughs> and and, and that herring is going to end up on a tzaddik's table, right? Correct. I think it's insufficient to the reality, the phenomenological reality of existence. I will, I, I'm will. i going to push back on another thing here, too. Even though I agree with you that literature is a wonderful uh, time machine, I have to tell you, as an adult, uh, and maybe even as a as a older teenager, I started being suspicious of anything in translation. I believe even a 5th, 6th, or 7th, and 8th grader needs to be a daikon. You need to be able to to parse the phrase and and savor it. It's it's chicanery to do that when you're dealing with a translation. I would say even Kafka, who again is is one of my what I read, you know, when I was 13 and I fell in love with with everything Kafka wrote, can I recognize that all my diukim are are Mehechitesi and Mederach Efsher, because even though he has very sparse German, it doesn't. It's English that I'm. I'm, I'm being Medayik and Max Broad. I'm not being Medayik uh, in the actual author, and therefore I would say the same thing. Although the story can sweep me up, but the teacher's ability to bring out the power of a sentence, of the illuminating interiorness of the character, is based on the original language of the author. And this is why I would give Adifas to Sir Walter Scott and and Dickens and I would you know throw in you know my favorite people like Steinbeck and others because there you could actually wrap your brain around the sentence and say why did he write it this way what do you think he meant by using this term and something else in translation all that is is a brochel of atola except where the uniqueness of the author is such that I cannot take Dostoevsky or even Tolstoy and just drop him from our curriculum, even though you know, we don't know Russian. And um, I, I'm thinking also of Francois Mauriac, who was a great uh, Catholic novelist who discussed sin and humility and arrogance. So again, if we can't do it in French, we can't do it in Russian, I'm still going to insist on certain unique works being included anyway. Uh, you know what You know what? I would be moited to? That the sections from, uh, from Dostoevsky, you know, now that we have the advantages of different translations. We have the Constance Bennett translation, which I think was the one you might have read growing up. And now they mm-hmm. have new ones. I'm not sure who the translators are, 
it would be great, I think, in this regard, and I would say about Kafka as well, to actually compare the translations and actually ask the reader, ask the, ask the students. I guess we're jumping to high school now, but I think that would be a great thing uh, in a high school class. I uh, taught Tolstoy's The Death, Death of Ivan Ilyich in a fairly yeshivish place. And I will say it was one of the few works that penetrated uh, their hearts and engaged their minds because, you know, the death and death of a, of a, a simple common balabas is a riveting topic for those who are not completely heart and mind dead. So I, I right, did but, succeed. At what age did you teach uh, the death of Evan? 11th grade. 11th grade. grade. So again, I, so we're sort of mixing uh, elementary and high school. What needs to be explained, I think, to students is the difference between an author who wants to write a, a, a novel. It might be meandering like Moby Dick, but it, it's meant to lead the reader onto an odyssey which is different than a short story where it's sort of like a, a, a punch in the gut or a pleasant walk uh, around the block, a spazier. And I think, therefore, you know, a short story has its own power. Or, or, or a poem, a poem. I would add poetry there as well. Oh, for sure. So I would say Twain's short stories, although, you know, Twain was a grace, grace uh, critic of, of biblical Judaism and other things. Twain actually does a, a, a very interesting job. Another thing that you mentioned, uh, and I think we have to make note of, is books that have sports. And, and it would seem that seventh and eighth grade, when the kids themselves in our imaginary school are playing sports, books about sports can only help in that regard and maybe even uh, allow them to have a greater sense of sportsmanship. Both both fiction and nonfiction. I think that everybody who has any sort of shyness with the world of sports is going to want to read both um, fictional works and also biographical or historical works. We, we all know, and again, without you know, getting onto a soapbox, that the, the only non- prejudicial writing left in in journalism is basically in the sports pages, right? I, I have to add here, because I wouldn't be without mentioning the uh, the fictional works that I read in my childhood, the Chip Hilton stories written by Claire B., who was the coach of City College and um, LIU later on. The Chip Hilton fictional books, Chip was this all-star in high school and college, and he had a group of friends he went to high school and college with. And there, I believe, are 24 volumes in the canon, and they're equally divided between football, baseball, and basketball. B had no shots right, to that hockey. Would probably be, but that would probably be more for the fourth, fifth, and sixth graders, or that would be for the seventh and eighth graders that we were talking about? Mm, yeah, I, I think it can still be done in seventh and eighth. I really do think so. Mm-hmm. I really do think so. I mean, I had finished the 24, 24 books before I got to, I think, the end of fourth grade. But uh, but again, I think it works. I think it really does work. So uh, we're sort of we're sort of running out of timer. So let's let's try to um, throw a couple of things. Let's say for our thirteen to fifteen year olds. As they've passed their bar mitzvah, now they're ready. They've got the they've got the hats and their tefillin, and we have them. And they have the tzoyis and the sivas. There, it's already part of what they've been being mafalpel in. And the tanya. Yes, yes. So let's let's talk a little bit about just a couple of throw out a p- couple of ideas, and we'll continue this hopefully uh, on a different program. So a couple of ideas for the thirteen to fifteen year olds. 
I am going to say that the C.S. Lewis Space Trilogy, particularly the third volume, That Hideous Strength, and I would also throw in the C.S. Lewis, um, The Great Divorce, which is a fantasy about going from hell to heaven every day. Since we've mentioned it, probably our imaginary students will want as sort of a reward and a way to actually further the conversation to see filmed versions of the stories that we have been studying with them in order to actually, it's a, not only a way to to see, hey, you imagine this, this is the way this director and writer thought about this idea, but they'll also understand the difference between the mediums, between the leisurely pace of a, of a book and a short story and what's demanded when something becomes translated into films and images. And although you forbid it to me, I will one more time say, <laughs> you'd have to explain to the student body what is romance? What is the notion of romance? When is it good? When is it bad? How do we process well, it? Well, again, we already had we already had uh, um, Ivanhoe. So Ivanhoe already, you know, is is really about the desire of a woman and you know what this is about. I would I would say for a ninth and tenth grader, especially despite our wonderful uh, utopian like uh, atmosphere where the rabbeim and everybody is and the teachers are all on the same page and all of the course students, of course all the students are dealt with we we know that what's going to happen for the mashiach before the bit of the Yitzhar, there's going to be some rebelliousness that's going to be pushing forward uh, and, and therefore I, I can't think of a better book uh, a better short story to teach in ninth and tenth grade than the conversion of the Jews which was part of Philip Roth's uh, award-winning collection, which, of course, is the story of Ozzy Freeman, who is part of a Talmud Torah. And this would be a wonderful wayback machine to teach kids about what America was like and how so much before Torah Masora was uh, kids going from the age of 11 to 13 to, to old shuls where after school they would be trained for their bar mitzvah. And basically that was their whole Jewish world was at that time. In Regal Park, we started at seven or eight. So uh, don't, I, uh, okay. don't, don't, don't limit those bitter, those bitter experiences. Right. And whether, I don't know where, if Roth himself went through that in the Wequaic section of, of Newark, but the, the story of a student who rebels, a student who is in a sense, caught up in the zeitgeist of, of, of the liberal world, who is finding that his his teacher, Rabbi Binder, who is binding him and not allowing him to, to really ask questions, his frustration, his frustration at the at, at what is his inability to ask questions. And Jewish insularism is 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 dealt with. I would also throw in two other Roth pieces which I think are great. Defender of the Faith, that's where you basically have a pretty solid, and this is, I think this you would, would appeal to you, a mayor, where you have a pretty much a solid sergeant who is who has served his country. He knows what his Judaism is, and he's he's uh, he is actually has to deal with these two gold bricking Jews who use their Judaism as any excuse to basically get out of every detail, every duty. Um, very important story, very important story. And I would say even perhaps greater is Eli the Fanatic. Oh, oh, oh my goodness. Absolutely, absolutely. Again, you have to do them in order. The first one you do is the conversion of the Jews. 
And that that really, I think, speaks to Christianity and Judaism. It speaks to a 13, 14-year-old kid, just like Ozzy Freeman. Again, yeah. you can even add, you can even puncture the easy names like Freeman and Binder. Yeah, Binder. And of course, a Blotnik, who of course is the shamus who only speaks Yiddish, who says, ah, Zashanda, the Blotnik. Okay. In, in Defender of the Faith, you can actually perhaps introduce that as the kid goes into 10th grade, where we also see Jews out there taking advantage of, of, of their status, et cetera, and it being so, so artificial and unreal. And it's a wonderful critique on so many people who, who, whose Judaism is, is paper thin. And then you have Eli the Fanatic, which is the ultimate discussion of the Frumwelt versus the modern Welt. The imagining something which probably happened in Rockland County. There, there were two other, two other possibilities I've thought always. Maybe Casho at Irvington or Nitra at Mount Kisco. Those are the three or four places I thought it, it could have been set. Roth had been aware of yeshivas confronting the ultimate opposition, not from, not from the, the wasps, but from the other Jews. And using Eli, who's their lawyer, to somehow becomes transfixed and transformed by what is going on, by the, by the poverty, by the suffering. It, it is so much a story of the Holocaust and, and really the, the, the struggle. All three of those, I think, take them to the bank in terms of, uh, <laughs> I, I think they can all be taught in ways that wouldn't even affect the sense of right. this. There's no portnoy in there at all. No, no, I agree. Yeah, we, we can put all three of them into the curriculum. So, Mayor, I'll leave you with that in terms of as we, uh, as we leave our imaginary world uh, and, and, and can hope, because I think everything we've mentioned today, I think you'll agree, will, will, can build within our students not only an appreciation for the written word, but I think a desire to emulate those authors to emulate them, to, to actually begin on their own, to journal, to, to write, to be inspired of how powerful uh, the written word can be. That it isn't just, you know, something that you sign in order to get a second slice of pizza, but it's something that you, you actually use to be your legacy. In other words, the Rabbeinu Shalom, there's something about the power of of, of, of a safer. There's something about something that can live beyond you, something that you can write and, 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 and connect. Let, let me tell you a, a short vignette of second grade PS206, uh, 1958 going into 1959. I had as a teacher, Miss Calderella, the old public school Miss teacher. And she taught us and demanded of us, I, I can't thank her enough throughout my entire life, but she did the following. On the side of the room was a big envelope, and you wrote your own short stories. This is second grade. Your own short stories, your own poems, your own essays, and you stuffed them in the envelope. And she would either grade them with a gold star, a silver star, or just a check, just a check. And there was actually on the wall there was this competition lined up with a point system, et cetera, et cetera. And I couldn't stop stuffing that envelope. 
I got up for tugs every day. And I wrote another short story about something. This is second grade, mind you, okay? And it was a bright group. It was. But she forced that out of us. And can you imagine second graders, seven-year-olds seven in our system being capable of doing such a thing? So I think what you envision is possible. It would be a gross of And among the other things, we can implement it in this imaginary yeshiva. All right. So we shall, on, on that dream, we will, we will <laughs> hopefully catch you soon again. Take care, everybody. Be well. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please take a moment to share this or any of the many episodes available on our platform with friends in order to help grow our community. Until next time, Shalom. Shalom.